Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Janie Brooks-Hoyk, and we're at Brooks Winery. It's January 10th, 2018. And Janie, we're going to start by asking you, why wine? Why wine? Because I like to drink it. Um, <clears throat> why I'm in the industry? You know, I came into the industry under unfortunate circumstances. My brother founded our family's winery back in 1998 um, here in the Willamette Valley. And in September 2004, he suddenly passed away. Um, Unexpected, he had an aortic dissection in his house making coffee on a Saturday morning. Um, And I live in California, and I flew up the night that that happened, and I was sat down by a group of his colleagues that were all winemakers in the valley, and they all really felt what he was doing was special, and that the brand should continue, and it was right before harvest. So they offered to take the fruit that year and make the wine and asked if I would help on the business side of things. And I said yes, really only because I had to. I I didn't have a choice. Someone was going to have to take care of everything that he had um, on behalf of his son, really. And got involved in it and loved it and loved the community and loved the people and um, decided to keep the family winery going. Did you have any interest in wine before? I, I drank wine before, <clears throat> but I didn't know anything about wine before. Uh, tell me a little bit about what Jimmy was like. Jimmy was, he was my older brother, <clears throat> just a year and a half older than me though, so we were always just a grade apart in school. Um, he definitely loved living life to the fullest. We, we had very different paths. I went to college and got my accounting degree <clears throat> and wanted to do, you know, get the best job possible out of college. He went to Linfield, um, graduated with a communications degree, didn't know what he wanted to do, so he bought a one-way ticket to Europe, um, which, you know, I was like, how can you do that? Mom and dad have just paid for this amazing education and you're just going to run off to Europe. In hindsight, he was a lot smarter than I was <laughs> for his path. Um, but just very, he loved experiencing life, everything about it. He loved to travel, he loved to cook, um, he loved being with people. He was opinionated, um, for sure. He was not shy (laughs) by any stretch of the means, um, but really smart and really thoughtful, um, a lot of self-reflection. He did a lot of journaling, really was into music. Do you have a favorite memory of Jimmy? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think favorite memory in wine would be the time that I went and visited him at Willa Kenzie, and I really had no idea what he was doing or how you make wine, and I was so impressed that he was able to do this without a formal education. Um, and just watching him take us through their cellar and the lab and talking about what he was doing and it was so foreign to me at the time because we had never 
really had those discussions at that level. Um, and I was just so proud of him. <clears throat> I just, that was such a great, great, great visit that we had that day at Willa Kenzie. Um, a memory in life, a favorite memory? That's a hard one. Um, cooking, really, I would have to say. Well, holiday cooking was one of my favorite things to do with him. We'd start early in the morning and prep all day long and start drinking something at 10 or 11 in the morning. And um, it was really all about the meal for him. And I loved doing that. I was not very inspired about cooking until I started cooking with him. What about a favorite memory of him and Pascal together? Um, we took a trip to Disneyland. Um, back probably in 2002, 2000, actually 2003, because my son was born. So it was a year before Jimmy passed away. And just seeing him in the role of being a father outside of the context of a home was really, really, really special and fun. And they'd go swimming at night and you know, just do all those things that you do when you're at Disneyland after you've been at the park all day. And, <clears throat> took him on all the scary rides. Of course he did. <laughs> and now I know that you, uh, I'm sure you hear a lot of stories about Jimmy from other people that you weren't necessarily there for. Do you have a favorite Jimmy story that someone has told you? I do hear a lot of stories about <laughs> Jimmy, and that's one of the, my favorite things about this continuing is that getting those memories and getting those stories for both myself and Pascal. So you mentioned that you, you had been up here and you visited Jimmy and you see him at Willa Kinsey. What did you know about Brooks Winery and sort of Jimmy's influence in Oregon before he died? Not much. You know, he would send me wine and I was actually, there was probably about the summer before he um, passed away, we had had conversations about me maybe representing the winery in um, the area where I live and he had come to town and we had taken wine out and showed I found a couple of accounts for us to go see and really but had no idea of the process. Um, and then when he passed away, I mean, I didn't know who those 12 people were in the room, so I had no context at that point about his peer group. It was really his service. Um, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that showed up at his service, and both my husband and I were like, and not to say really, but like we probably, w we just didn't expect that. We had no idea. Um, how far reaching his influence had been in the community. And now that I know all the winemakers that helped him that year, it's you know, an A-list of who's great in the peer group in Oregon. So that obviously lended a ton of credibility in my mind to what he was doing. Um, but I, I mean, I really didn't have very much of an understanding of, of the industry itself, let alone what his positioning was in it. Um, but once I got involved and I started talking to his friends and distributors and other wineries and realized that the whole Riesling emphasis was very different, very bold, the biodynamic farming influence as well and his leadership in that made a big difference. Um, and really his, you know, that idea of accessibility and being with people and being around a table and food and wine and the importance of that, that he emulated in such a big way, which is I think why he had so many great close friends because he was so 
it was so important to him to be building community as part of the process of being in the wine industry. So once you decided to continue the winery, tell us kind of how that process started. You had people telling you they would help you get harvest out, you would do marketing, and, and then sort of what happens next after that? Well, that first harvest, we came up here a couple times, um, and looking back, it's really silly because I like met with all the winemakers and had them bring samples of the wine. I had no idea, you know. And there I am. I take my first sample sip and I swallow it. They all are spitting because the wines aren't finished fermenting, <laughs> and I'm like, that's how I didn't know very much about wine. Um, but we got that first vintage, Chris. Williams, who's our winemaker now and was Jimmy's assistant, did the blending for that vintage and we got it into bottle. We, Jimmy was making his wines at Mesara at the time and Mo um, and Flora let us finish making the wines there, which was fantastic, but then we were gonna need to find a home. So that was really our first major decision point if we wanted to continue the brand for future vintages was making the steps to find a permanent or at least a location for us to continue to make the wine in. And when Chris and I talked about it, we really decided that we wanted to try to keep it going. Um, didn't really fully understand what that meant at that time, but we decided we were gonna take the plunge and we were gonna try to do it according to Jimmy's philosophies and principles. And if it didn't work, then we'd go down the right way. And that spring, we made a decision to move into a custom crash facility to keep making the wine. Um, I then started to get more familiar with the business side of things, obviously, and distribution, which was the primary source for our sales at that point. And things were moving along pretty well, and then in 2008, just the amount of money we were paying for Custom Crush didn't make sense if we were going to continue doing this for a lot more years. And so the whole question of, do we find a home? Um, and we decided, yes, that we should find a home, and we did, um, just a quarter of a mile from here in an old Brooks prune drying facility that was built back in the 60s. So that really was kind of the step that gave us the most permanency and commitment of this is going to continue. So, and, and kind of what role did the, the, those winemakers the ones you're honoring this year, what role do they play in kind of uh, preserving the legacy of, of Brooks? Some of them continued to take fruit for us for a number of years, um, maybe where we sh shared vineyard sources um, or just because they offered to, which was great. So there was some from the winemaking side, but there was also a lot from um, just the business side. There were so many people that I could call at any point in time and ask the dumbest questions in the world. And a lot of them were, <laughs> now that I look back. But um, they, they continue to give me guidance. And um, we've come up a little bit into our own, I think. Or at least I feel like I have in terms of having more knowledge now. Um, but I still rely on them and lean on them for a variety of things and, and different things with different people in terms of how they run their business and what their wineries are about. So at what point did you feel like this was going to survive and going to thrive and going to be something that would last indefinitely? I've always felt that the support and passion for the brand could continue it as a legacy. We've had a lot of growth. Since Jimmy passed away, it was clearly not going to be sustainable making 2,500 cases um, and having a building and a, wine, a winemaker and the overhead that comes with running the business. And so we've really ramped up our volume since then, which 
no matter how much you love the wine, it's really hard from a business standpoint when you grow in the wine industry with the cash outlay. Um, to be super honest about that, I would say after we built this building, our new winery, and we really have changed our business model in terms of our customer base to more direct-to-consumer, um, and just the growth overall. And we've also leveled off production now, so really happy in the last three years that there's a good opportunity for this to knock on wood, um, keep running. Did you think Brooks Winery would still be here in 2018? No, not initially, <clears throat> and, and I'm not sure that I would think that far ahead. It's, there's a funny story when I, my husband swears that he told me the day that I left to come up to Jimmy's house the night that he died, don't you dare think about it. <laughs> and I, I don't remember him saying that to me, but that was his words of advice for me <laughs> in terms of running the winery. Um, but I'm really glad it's here. I'm not, but no, I would say that I would not have thought back then that this would be a, a lifetime commitment on my part. <laughs> when you mentioned that you had, once you kind of decided, you started learning the business and, and, and sort of learning the industry, how did you go about learning that, uh, coming into it the way you did? I took a class at UC Davis online right away, the Intro to Viticulture and Enology class so that I could at least learn the terminology when I was talking to some of the winemakers when they would you know, throw around ML and I had no idea what that meant, not only in terms of definition, but what it meant as part of the winemaking process. So that helped a lot for at least for me to understand kind of the life cycle of the vine and the process of making wine. Um, the, the rest of the business side of it, you learn it as it comes, right? You're still getting invoices, you're still getting purchase orders, and just as we lived through it for so many years, it was kind of on-the-job training, for sure. What was your vision for Brooks Winery when you started? It's always been from the very beginning to preserve Jimmy's philosophies. It's interesting now to talk to people about what they think he would have done with the winery. Um, there's people that think he'd be in Georgia making, you know, natural wine or, and that was 10 years ago people were saying that. Um, <clears throat> but I, that's always been super important to me and, and that's something guidance-wise that I've gotten from a lot of people too when I have asked in the industry a particular question. Their responses would start with, well, what Jimmy would have probably done, um, which has been super helpful for sure for me. How do you balance that with the, act, the natural and needed growth of, of your winery? How do you balance like Jimmy's initial, original vision with kind of the needed changes? Um, they're, they're, all, they're all still very intact. Um, I think probably one of the most challenging of them to maintain has been his blending program. Um, he was using two and a half ton fermenters as his largest vessel, making 2,500 cases, and we made 27,000 cases this year using two and a half ton fermenters as our largest vessel. Um, and obviously, with that type, I mean, that's just a lot of work, but it's really something that we believe has a huge impact on the quality of the end product and won't compromise that just for ease of life and ease of work. So, um, and it, it, it 
that decision is always in that vein of that's the way Jimmy did it. There was a reason he did it that way. That's why we want to keep doing it the way we're doing it. Um, the marketing side is probably way different than anything he would have done, although I have to give him a ton of credit for creating an amazing label. Um, with our 20-year anniversary this year, we actually kind of went through that whole process of what's our tagline, what's our, you know, what are we going to do for an anniversary logo? And we actually picked back up using peace, bread, land, and wine, which was something that he had on his bottles of Runaway Red and on every t-shirt that he made, and it really does encompass if you throw hospitality into the peace <laughs> part, bread, land, and wine, kind of what we're all about, um, which I was thrilled that here we are 20 years later and we went back to something that he had his vision and that it still applies to what we're doing today. What do you think he would think about where Brooks is today? I think he would love the wines. I think he'd be very proud of the wines. I think he would um, not really like the marketing and commercial side of the business, although he would understand that that's what it needed to take, make it actually work. Um, I think he'd be super happy that it's still here. And I know Pascal's super happy that it's still here. So I think he'd be surprised <laughs> a little bit that this has all happened. Why do you think that the Jimmy Brooks story resonates with so many people? I think it resonates with so many people because of the collective community and passion really driven behind wanting the brand to continue, which in my experience is very much a reflection of the wine industry itself and the people that I've gotten to know that there isn't a lot of ego, there isn't a lot of competition, there is, I mean there is, but not in a way that it's not um, collaborative with each other and supportive. Um, he obviously touched so many lives that so many people have, it's made a difference in a lot of people's lives that it still exists because people still can talk about him and people can still share their memories and with the death that I've had in my family that doesn't happen with everybody else I mean if when I run into a friend of my parents or two sure we talk about some great memories but it's 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 not on the same level in terms of it's just it's an amazing act of human kindness that these this group did on behalf of you know somebody they loved and to be able to continue that and to nurture it for itself and for Pascal has been really really rewarding and we just don't get those opportunities necessarily in life anymore how do you balance uh, your life in California and mm -hmm. running a winery in Oregon well um, I mean, a lot of the work that I do for the winery, I can do from anywhere um, outside of running the tasting room up here. But, you know, a lot of the sales and distribution and that kind of thing and accounting and finances I can do from my house. So that's really helpful that when I am home, I'm actually at home. Um, I have two kids that one of them was two when Jimmy passed away and the other was six. 
and bringing Pascal into our family the way that we have since Jimmy passed away, they're all like siblings. So I think that's actually been a really positive piece to uh, the balance of what I've had to do because I, I have given up a lot um, to my family because I do travel a lot. Uh, personally, <clears throat> we're invested in the winery. My husband's a saint because <laughs> he is so supportive um, of what I've been doing. And now it's, now nobody knows the difference really. I mean, it's just how our life works that I'm home for a couple weeks and then I'm on the road somewhere for a week and then I'm home for a couple weeks and then I'm on the road for a couple weeks and we spend our summers up here and um, that's pretty much how my kids grew up, really. So what's your marketing and, or business philosophy? Very consumer and customer centric. Um, <clears throat> I really believe that life is too short not to try to have great experiences and so my philosophy at least for this place is to be providing people with an awesome time versus the traditional tasting room experience. Um, for that very reason, I just if you're going to go out and invest your money in something, I think you should have it be a memorable, you know, wonderful time and not anything less than that. So how did you make that philosophy fit into the Oregon wine industry and what did you see as the ideal tasting room experience? Tableside service, for one, that there wouldn't be the traditional tasting bar that people walk up to, stand at. Um, I really wanted seating. I wanted kind of a living room style of comfort. Um, the views that we have are amazing. I love that people can sit outside on the deck and you know work on our grounds and wander around and really can make a day of it. And that really comes from how we treat everybody that comes through our door. Um, it's not a sales push. It's not a rush push to get people in and out. It is wanting them to come and have the best experience they possibly can, not only for hospitality, but for food and wine. What are some of the challenges of running, a running or marketing a winery in Oregon? There aren't any. <laughs> no, I'm it's kidding. super easy. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of wineries, you know, so, and there's only so many people that are drinking wine. So I think um, how you build the relationships across your network, whether that be for your direct consumers or with your distributors and their sales reps and the end buyer at the end of the day, um, is probably the most important thing that you can do. Have the challenges changed since you started? Yes. In what way? Um, <clears throat> I think the whole, the, the world of print, advertising and media and writing and authenticity of writing versus a pay to play type of promotion has changed a lot. Back when we first got into this, it was still media were, you know, being hired to write articles for publications and there weren't commitments for advertising or any other reason but by writing an authentic great story is what people were doing. And now that whole world is super competitive. Everybody has a wine guide. Everybody wants you to buy an ad. Everybody you know, and, and how effective is any of that? You know, there was a point where it was effective. Now there's probably 
I don't even know, 20, 30 websites you can go to and get a list of Oregon wineries and maps and recommendations. And so I think the challenge of trying to find where you spend your dollars to get the most influence. Um, print used to be really important. I don't think it's as important anymore, unfortunately. And that's both locally and on a national scale. Um, there's so many more people writing about wine that who are the influencers, who aren't the influencers. Social media has made a huge, it's obviously way different since Facebook didn't exist <laughs> back then, um, but has a very powerful presence now. And I think there's a, you know, a decent generational shift happening up here right now too, which is, is very different in terms of, you know, the original and kind of the original founders in the industry who are all getting to the point where they want to get out and they want to retire and um, the messaging I think that comes with that versus being new and on the hip and cool side and how you balance that has been really tricky and different from when I first got into the industry and there were so many fewer wineries. It constantly amazes me when I look at winery names in the Willamette Valley and I have no idea. I've never heard of it. I don't know any of the people and it definitely wasn't like that back in 2004. So what is your, what is, do you think is the most influential part of marketing? If it's not print, is it word of mouth now? Is it digital? Um, I think, I think word of mouth is always the most important um, and something that we work really hard to make sure that people have the best experience possible here and that that's what they're talking about. Because um, we all know that if someone has a bad experience, you can tear something down a lot faster than it took to build it up. You know, you need 10, 10 people, 10 positive things for every one negative thing to have the same effect. So I think that that is the most important to me, at least. Um, and social media is really just a vehicle to communicate your messaging. And it is important, there's a lot of reach. I think it makes a difference. I know it does for me, personally. It has an impact. So obviously you talked earlier about Riesling and sort of Brooks's focus on Riesling. Um, what makes Riesling special? Why do, you, why, why do you continue to focus on it? Well, Jimmy wanted to focus on it because it's the most transparent white grape varietal um, in terms of reflecting the land that it's planted on. I honestly wasn't aware of the fact that not everyone in Oregon was making Riesling until maybe 2006, 2007, and that is the honest truth. And then I kind of went, oh, thanks. I didn't realize that like we're by ourselves. And I went to, not by ourselves, but a pretty small group of us that are focused on Riesling as our white varietal. And I went to, that was the first year of the Riesling Rendezvous up in Seattle, Washington and went to that and two tastings of 32 Rieslings. And I, I, the light bulb went on for me about the versatility of the varietal um, in terms of being dry to sweet, as well as a zillion styles in between, um, and just how much you can do with it. And that's, you know, that is a special thing for that varietal. And so we've worked really hard here to make sure that we are demonstrating those expressions. We make 20 different Rieslings. 21 might 
be with the sparkling that we just did. Um, so that's really been my commitment to it, that if we're going to do this, uh, we need to do it right, and we need to do it as broad as we can. <clears throat> I also sit on the board of the International Riesling Foundation, so I've tried to support Riesling in locally, but as well um, across the country and across the world, and been a player in that community. How do you market and sell that many different types of Riesling? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, three of them, three or four of them go into national distribution or are available in national distribution. The rest of them are all 150 case and less single vineyards. Because we do everything in such small lots, we're really able to isolate, isolate the different characteristics that come from the specific sites that we purchase from. So in honoring those growers, we really like to put 50 to 150 cases worth of wine into its own bottle and, and label. That's mostly wine club. Uh, we rotate our flights here on a monthly basis. We have three different flights, and there's six wines per flight, so there's a lot of room to showcase different wines. You mentioned the International Riesling Association. Foundation. Foundation. Uh, what <clears throat> other um, groups are you a part of, uh, organizations, associations are you a part of? Uh, currently, I am on the board of Wine America which is the lobbying entity in Washington, D.C. for the industry. And I'll be vice chair of that starting in February. I'm on the board of the International Riesling Foundation. I sit on the media committees for IPNC uh, and then the marketing committee for the Willamette Valley Winery Association. Spent six years on the board of Oregon Pinot Camp and was chair one year. So local and national and international. Have there been any, um, any success stories that, or any kind of uh, impact that you've felt through those organizations? For Brooks? Yeah. The networking is super important. I mean, that's one of the things that I love about the national and international boards that I'm on is it's a broader community than um, the, the local groups and they're also a little bit easier for me to be on because I don't live here and they tend to do then remote conference calls for board meetings and stuff instead of hands-on meetings like we have here in the valley. Um, so there's definitely a broader brand awareness from having been or and being on those boards um, which is super important. What's your favorite part of the wine industry? The people. All of them? <laughs> a lot of them. A lot, you know, my, it's funny because my kids will tell me, they're like, Mom, you don't really hang out with any of your friends anymore at home. And it's like my network of friends now is all over the country. Some of my dearest people, and they're all in the industry. I've met them all through the industry. And it's, it's such a special group because the motivation of why people, why most people are in this industry is about passion and about being artistic and creative and being authentic and being true to something and it's not about money and it's not about ego and um, I just really, really enjoy the community. Do you think those motivations are changing at all as the industry is growing and becoming more competitive? No, not in terms of the intentions of the people, but I do think that people have jobs 
<laughs> and with their job comes their responsibility to execute whatever it is they're responsible for executing. Um, and, you know, that needs to be done. It, I think it's definitely heightened um, everybody's awareness of their own businesses by having a lot more competition and bigger competition and, you know, some bigger companies that are fine-tuned machines. You know, they've done this for a long time. They do this on a much larger scale. They've learned a lot of the lessons and, the, and have the resources to change and adapt where I think that a lot of the smaller family-owned and operated businesses, that's a different model. Um, and so that it is making everybody look internally at their own business and how they're running it and what they want to change or what philosophies are really important to them to continue to follow or what strategic decisions from a business standpoint. I think, not that a lot of people are on their toes, but it definitely is having all of us, yeah, stay on our toes, I guess, in terms about how you keep your business going in a much more competitive market than we had back in 2004. What's, what, do you find, what do you think the identity uh, is of the Yield Amity Hills? Well, the definite geography with having the Van Duzer Corridor, um, which are the winds that you know cool off the valley during the summer. <clears throat> we also have higher elevations than some of the other AVAs, and so just later ripening and better acid retention and longer hang time and um, I mean, I think that's kind of a general characteristic that's specific down here, especially because we are in the bullseye of the Van Duzer Corridor, so we really benefit the most and get the greatest impact from <clears throat> the change in climate throughout the day. The diurnal shift. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some of the challenges of marketing a sub-ABA like the old Amity Hills? Probably the same challenges of, of marketing wine in general, that 95% of the audience out there doesn't know very much. The 5% that does cares. <laughs> but the reality is, you know, we're still trying to market the Willamette Valley. And we all know the Willamette Valley, but you can get, you know, there was a Pinot Noir conference in New Zealand last year, I think, with some of the top wine writers in the world, and it was Pinot Noir from around the world, and there was not one Oregon Pinot Noir included in the conference. So you know we still have work to do in terms of marketing Oregon, brand Oregon, brand Willamette Valley, and I think those are honestly more important outside of this community than, than promoting the sub-AVAs because I think there's just an educational gap there that most of the world isn't necessarily ready for unless you're really into wine. What are you most proud of from your time in the industry? that I'm still here <laughs> and that I'm doing this and it feels good and it looks good and um, that, I, that I think it's just sustainable now and I wouldn't say that I felt that way through all the years that I've done this. Um, but I'm, I'm excited that we're here and we're doing what we're doing and just yesterday I was sitting with a bunch of our crew and I'm like, I love my job. <laughs> I really do. That's a nice feeling to have. Yeah. Uh, so Jimmy always talked about the winery going to his son, 
uh, Pascal. Um, how did you help navigate Pascal's journey, determining if you wanted to be part of the industry? From the beginning, I never have wanted to pressure Pascal to have to do anything with the winery. Um, Chris and I really, when we decided to keep this going and made those decisions back in 2005, that was our decision. And I really did it in a lot of ways for me. Um, and obviously not, not, not for Pascal, but not with the intention of him having to take it over or run it or do anything with it if he didn't want to. Uh, we sent Summers up here, so he's gotten to know throughout the years all of Jimmy's friends a lot better, really well. Um, his uncles, he calls them, and now he calls them the drunkles. Now that he's old enough to, you know, realize that they like to get together too and drink and talk. But he does get together with a group of Jimmy's dear friends every summer. They have a night that they always spend with Pascal, which is really sweet. He is now 21 years old, 22. He just turned 22 this week and is getting a dual degree at UC Santa Cruz in sustainable agriculture and creative writing. And the sustainable agriculture was all his. There was, that was all his idea to get a job on the farm at UC Santa Cruz and loved it. And you know, the first time he worked, he was pruning apple trees and he couldn't wait to share with me that do you know the impact of when you prune something, how many you know buds it leaves and how much fruit you're going to end up getting? And I just looked at him and thought, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know grapevine works the exact same way? And he had no idea. Um, but he's been very passionate about the farming side of what he's doing. And if that leads him to come here, great. He definitely has the genes of his father because what he's talking about at this point is going to Europe and maybe working for a winery in France, and that's exactly what Jimmy did when he got out of college. So we will see, but he does own it outright, 100%. Um, so it's really kind of his to do what he wants to do with it, but he, he loves it, and he loves what's happening, and may or may not want to be involved. We don't, we don't know yet. So you mentioned that you went out of your way to not pressure him. Do you feel like you felt pressure from other sources or other people as he was growing up? Yeah, I think he's, he's felt pressure from just having to be a part of some things that maybe he wouldn't necessarily otherwise have chosen to be a part of. Having to be in a photo shoot that maybe he wouldn't have wanted to be a part of or an interview. Um, he's done quite a few of those now over the years. When we first bought the house here and we'd come up for the summers and we'd be walking down the street in downtown McMinnville and people would stop him and say, you look so much like your dad. You know, he heard, I don't know about pressure from the winery and being in the wine industry, but there was also that innate pressure of, are you going to be like your dad? Are you like your dad? Are you going to be okay without your dad? Like just that kind of, it's an odd thing for, you know, nine, 10 year old to be recognized on the street. So, so what do you hope his future holds? That he's happy. That he lives life and enjoys his life and does it probably the same way his dad did, which is fabulous. So what's in the future for Brooks Winery? The future for Brooks Winery? Um, continuing to have a lot of fun. <clears throat> Probably not growing production anymore. Although, you know, I say that in a year where we had huge yields and we brought in 
5,000 cases more wine than we wanted to. But I would like this just to continue to be a place that makes a high quality product that serves a lot of people throughout the country and helps everybody else's businesses. You know, I think that's something that we're really proud of in terms of how consistent our wines are. I know that our distributors are relying on our wines. I know that restaurants are relying on our wines. I know that sales reps are relying on our wines to be produced with that same level of quality and consistency every year. So to be part of their food chain and life is super important to me and something that we will definitely continue to do. And then hopefully here at the home base, you know, provide the best possible experiences for our customers and, and really to have a lot of fun. It's a good goal. I like that. Um, what about the future for the Oregon wine industry in general? That's a hard one. That's what we ask it. I know. <laughs> right. So, right. I would imagine there's going to be a normal type of life cycle that we've seen a little bit like in the distribution area where all these smaller businesses pop up, grow, bigger players come into town. I think there's going to start being consolidation, more purchasing potentially, wineries closing down. It'll be really interesting to see just with the change of hands of how much stuff is for sale right now and both on the vineyard and the winery side and where that generational shift, what it looks like when we get to the other side of it because we're right in the middle of it right now. Um, but I do think that there's going to be some consolidation and reduction overall in terms of the number of wineries. I think Oregon's the hottest region right now in the country. If you talk to pretty much any media person and a lot of consumers, I think the, the general appreciation in the food and wine industry for open-mindedness in terms of what they're eating and what they're drinking across the country. You know, the restaurant scene has really done that for us and the chef scene in terms of people eating food combinations that they never would have thought of and relying on their sommelier to bring them something that would pair really well with it. I think that's a great thing for Oregon because our wines tend to be so much higher acid-driven and food-friendly in general that we're really starting to see that uptick across the country and in the best dining experiences in the country and for consumers then too that are learning it. So I think there's a lot of super positive things right now too that are happening here as a region. What are the challenges or concerns for Oregon's wine future, wine industry future, what, do you see anything on the horizon that's troubling? No, except for if there is the continued sale and consolidation. To, if anybody, you know, closes their winery, I mean, that's kind of stuff just as people. You know, you don't want to see after all these years of hard work, you hope that when a grower sells his vineyard to somebody new that they put the same passion and intensity and effort into it. Um, and same with you know the different wine businesses because a lot of those are shifting generations or selling or that there's still an identity and an authenticity and a differentiation across all the businesses here and that it doesn't get too homogenized. 
What advice would you have for someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry? <laughs> Funny you should ask that, because we have some friends in town right now that are up here looking at properties. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I would go to Idaho and try to be the star of the Idaho wine region. I would not come up here with the intention of being able to sell a lot of wine. I think it's a, it's a super competitive market, and if you can't come up here right now and completely differentiate yourself from every other winery, it's not, it's not difficult if you have the money to buy land, to build a building, to hire a winemaker, to make wine. It is hard to sell it. It's a very competitive world, so if you don't have a really strong niche that you're going after, I would go to Idaho and become the coolest brand in Idaho. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I would tell someone to do. If you're gonna do it just for the lifestyle and make the investment, by all means. But if you're coming up here to be a serious competitor in the wine world, I don't think there's a shot for very many opportunities. Interesting, interesting. It, it, how would you, how would someone who came in new differentiate themselves? What could be, what could possibly be done that would be totally different in the Willamette Valley? Well, there's a lot of new wineries, or younger wineries, I should say, that are focusing on different varietals than the typical. So I think that can make a difference, but it's also scale. That's not scalable by any means, but it is a way to differentiate yourself from everybody else. Um, the hospitality side of what they're doing. You know, our building has made a huge difference, not only for us, but for the Valley in general. A lot of people are doing more of a hospitality experience style, which is awesome. And that really wasn't happening on any grand scale, except the last few years, it's really caught on, which I think is great. So doing something different from an experience hospitality standpoint is another opportunity. But it, it at the end of the day, you know, we're all, we're all trying to get the attention of the concierges at the Allison, right? <laughs> and at the different B&Bs, and it just, there are just not that many opportunities, I don't think, for people to come up here and make a splash. I think we're all already here. <laughs> we're all kind of maxed out. <laughs> but, you know, if somebody wants to come up, really, I'd go to Idaho. <laughs> So if you could go back in time, would you, would you do it all over again? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah, I might be a little bit more forward thinking about my growth plans <laughs> and have that a little bit more organized. But now we're here. We got here. We made it. So I think it's great. I wouldn't change it. I wish I could bring my brother back, right? But, you know, I, in so many ways, he is a part of this. It's... The day of his service, there was a rainbow. Um, his service was actually right at the estate vineyard. And there was a rainbow at the end of his service. There was a rainbow the day we broke ground on this building. There was a rainbow the day that we had our opening party here. Like I, It's so interesting, because I'm not super spiritual that way, but it's pretty f great the days that you know we see the Jimbo, is what we call it. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I, there were days that I was in my car needing cash more than anything, and all of a sudden I'd get like a huge purchase order from New York, 
And he's the only one that knew I was thinking about that. <laughs> so I feel like he's present in a lot of ways with what we're doing. But I would do it again. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.